Hi, welcome to another episode of Palms a Penny Each. My name is Vincent S. Coster and this week we are going to look at Adam's Curse by William Butler Yeats. So there's quite a lot to actually to say about Yeats. Um, he's a really fascinating character that was into all sorts of everything. He really was a bohemian character. But unfortunately for Yeats, he's something similar to what we would have in Bono, in that he is an Irish cultural icon who was extremely popular at one point, but after another, after a certain point, um, people in Ireland kind of saw him as being too big for his boots, having notions about himself, which is a terrible thing to be accused of in Ireland. To be accused of having notions is an awful thing. Um, and because of that, he kind of, his work is kind of over, overrode, overrode, that's not even a word. His his work is over overlooked or kind of spoiled, I should say by the fact that people have this idea of him being a pompous, full-of-himself person. But that really is an unfair thing to say about Yeats. Yeah, he was part of the Anglo-Irish ruling caste that was put to, in Ireland to govern and rule over the native population. But the man was was an ardent nationalist, a separatist. He was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood. And... It isn't an overstatement to say that without Yeats writing the work that he did, reintroducing people to Irish myths and legends and stories and writing poems and plays full of these things, um, as, as kind of tacky as we might think of them now, Catalina uh, Houlihan is one particular thing, but without his work, we wouldn't have an independent part of Ireland today. And and I think a lot of people try to downplay his significant role in that. And and partly because of the fact that he was in part of the Anglo-Irish ruling caste, or caste I should say, who was planted there by the English government and English crown to um, control the population. And I think the fact that, as, as Oscar Wilde once said to him early on in his career, Irish poets, in the English language at least, were spectacular failures. Irish language poets have for centuries written absolutely amazing, wonderful poems that were just inventive, playful, um, earthy, sometimes absolutely filthy. But in the English language, most Irish poets had failed and were not really that good. Oscar Wilde was better as a playwright he wrote one really good poem the ballad of reading jail but beyond that he um you know irish poets writing in english language were complete failures and then yeats came along not only did yeats give the cultural reawakening that helped irish people um return to the sense of separateness from britain and, and have a sense of identity beyond being part of the British Empire. Look back to the Celtic Gaelic-speaking history with um, a sense of pride. But even after independence, he was the first 
Irishman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was he brought great prestige to the country by virtue of his his um, poetry. And I think there is even still at that time you have to remember this is a government who although they claimed that Ireland was a place where all religions could worship freely, at this point we're in the process of turning Ireland into a Catholic controlled state. People talk about Sharia law in Ireland um, and go on about how it's a bad thing, but they also, at the same token, see banners from the Irish National Party, whatever they're called. And they'll have these banners saying, no to Sharia, make Ireland Catholic again. So the, the, the idea is that Ireland should be under the catechism, the law of the Catholic Church. It, and that's what Ireland was like. And Yates tried to fight that as as a senator in the Irish uh, government uh, to no avail because he brought in uh, a ban on divorce and other things and, and slowly the Catholic morality kind of controlled the government. And the people were still very, um, the, a lot of Irish people were very resentful of the fact that here was this Englishman in inverted commas who was the only international currency they could have at that time was the fact that his poetry was world famous. And that kind of carries on even now. Even nowadays, you still hear a lot of people being very snide about Yeats and they'll use his relationship uh, with Maud Gahn and Isil Gahn, uh, her daughter, who he proposed to when, he was, when she was in her 20s, after his mum had finally, had for the last time, refused his, his advances. You have the fact that he married a woman on a whim because he'd been told by a fortune teller that if he didn't marry by a certain date, a catastrophe would happen. So he found a woman who married him and then proceeded to have like a lot of affairs with other younger um, literati types. So in one respect, he, he kind of, you know, people use that as an excuse, but underneath it, there's the thinly veiled resentment of the fact that here was the Englishman who... Um, gave Ireland fame and notoriety. So he's quite an interesting character. He's a problematic character for some, but for me, and like I said, he's like Bono. You know, people at one point were very proud of him. He did us good. He was a cultural icon that is loved more outside of Ireland than inside of Ireland. Um, he was fiercely proud of being Irish, even though he has an there's an english aspect to him again like bono who has english parentage but on top of that at least i think he has english parents i have heard that but you know there, there is that accusation about him that you know i'm sure he's part british but the other thing about it is that does the fact is is that he's done us good and and that's all i can say for him i think yates uh, without Yeats, we wouldn't have um, the recognition for Irish poets that we have today. We wouldn't have an Ireland as an independent state. And we would not have had a reconnection with the heritage and wealth of native Irish stories and poems. So that's why I admire him. And I know that that would be a controversial view but in, in by a lot of people in Ireland. But I, I don't care. Yeats is brilliant. So I really... Ch uh, Order to check him out. Now we're going to have a look at his poem, Adam's Curse, and I'll discuss that in a moment.
Adam's Curse by William Butler Yeats. We sat together at one summer's end, that beautiful mild woman, your close friend, and you and I, and talked of poetry. I said a line will take us hours, maybe, yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. Better go down upon your marrow bones, and scrub a kitchen pavement or break stones, like an old pauper in all kinds of weather. For to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these, and yet be taught an idler by the noisy set of bankers, schoolmasters and clergymen the martyrs call the world. And thereupon that beautiful mild woman for whose sake there is many a one shall find out all heartache, and finding that her voice is sweet and low replied, to be born a woman is to know, although they do not talk of it at school, that we must labour to be beautiful. I said, it's certain there is no fine thing since Adam's fall, but needs much labouring. There have been lovers who thought love should be so much compounded of high courtesy, that they would sigh and quote with learned looks, precedence out of beautiful old books. Yet now it seems an idle trade enough. We sat, gro we sat grown quiet at the name of love. We saw the last embers of daylight die, and in the trembling blue-green of the sky, a moon, worn as if it had been a shell, washed by time's waters as they rose and fell about the stars, and broke in days and years. I had a thought, for no one's but your ears, that you were beautiful, and that I strove to love you in the old highway of love, that it had all seemed happy, and yet we'd grown as weary-hearted as that hollow moon. Okay, so that's the poem, and it's one of the most emotive poems, especially with that ending, which we'll come to in a moment. Just a little brief detail about this. This poem is a recollection of an evening spent with Maud Gunn and a friend as they're walking along and they're talking to each other about art and beauty and and love. Um, there's a sadness to this poem because it was in the collection In the Seven Woods, which was released in 1904. So this poem was written just before or around the time when Maud Gunn actually got married to Major Sean McBride who or Major John McBride I should say given him his Irish name his son was Sean McBride but she married uh, John McBride uh, which was a very famous uh, wedding it was almost like a propaganda thing there was the photograph of of Maud John and the baby Sean McBride sat out with weapons all over the table it was like a you know some people link it to like almost being like an ISIS photograph you know of the the war bride and, and the, the rebel and all of that kind of stuff but it wasn't a very happy marriage and the sad thing is is that when when the divorce happened um she didn't actually divorce him she left him they were separated she got a lot of flack from the um republican people the, the republican movement for it um being good Catholics, they couldn't divorce, and he died when he was executed by the British in 1916. But that's that's a story. 
of of that. So it was around a time when when um or just before when Maud was about to get married, which is why there's a kind of sadness to it. It's a very sad kind of thing, and I think that Yates puts that in at the end of it. But we won't jump straight to the end just yet. It's it's quite a lovely poem. What I like about this poem is because it articulates something that anyone involved in the creative industry will understand. Um, the amount the amount of times where you say to somebody, someone says, "What do you do for a living?" and you say, "What what's your job? What do you do for work?" and you say, "My work is I'm a poet," and people will go straight away to you. What's your real job? It's like they can't process the idea that of the fact that your real job actually is writing poetry. Um, and, and this poem articulates it so well. You have that line um, at the end of the first kind of stanza where he says, um, For to articulate sweet sounds together is to work harder than all these and yet be taught an idler by the noisy set. So there's, you know, and then he lists these professions. So if you say, I work as an artist, I am a sculptor, I am a poet, particularly a poet, um, you tend to have people kind of look down their nose at you and go, but what's your real job? Uh, to them, uh, they, they don't appreciate the fact that if you are a writer of any kind or an artist of any kind, um, working on one piece you know, it could take years. Some people have have worked on pieces that have taken years to complete, and it's not like they're just sitting around doing nothing. They're, you know, they are going out, they are enjoying their life with their friends like everyone else does. But there are times where they're working like mad, just trying to get even one sentence right. Because, like Yeats says, a line will take us hours, maybe. Yet if it does not seem a moment's thought, our stitching and unstitching has been not. So that's the point we're trying to make. Hours of work. Look almost like it's as if it's just something that you could just jot it down in a second. And and if it doesn't look that natural, if it doesn't have that, then it's pointless. It doesn't work out. Our stitching and unstitching. And again, it, this is another labour-intensive job. If you if you do cross-stitching um, as, a, as a hobby, for example, or even as a craft. I know I have a friend in Canada who, who does it as a craft that she makes money out of those errors of stitching and unstitching and, and working on on a thing if, if if it doesn't look perfect if it doesn't look right it's worthless and it's the same with poetry if, if you don't make your your lion look so like as if it's just something that thought that just popped into your head it doesn't look effortless and and nobody it won't be good if you write a poem and it like is so laboured, it comes across as that, and and the poem just doesn't work. So that's the point he's he's making that you know, being a poet isn't a lazy idle task. It's a very hard, intensive work that people don't see the work that goes into it. And so it's like a bit of a moan about that fact. And then Maud Gunn interjects into the poem, and she explains the fact that something that she hasn't learned in school and thereupon the beautiful mild woman on finding her voice is sweet and low replied to be born a woman is to know although although they do not talk of it at school that we must labor to be beautiful so there's this idea again that you have to look beautiful you have to work at it 
to spend hours on your hair, hours on your clothes, hours on, on your makeup, to do all this work to make yourself look beautiful. And <clears throat> that that's what she says in this poem. She says that, you know, just like the same thing, yeah, it's the same for women. We have to work hard at looking beautiful, but again, it has to look effortless. The man doesn't want to see the, you know, the scaffolding that goes into putting on the facade. They just want to see the facade. So, you know, they they talking about this, and then um, Adam, then William interjects again. You know, again pointing, and this is where the title comes in. It's referring to the fact that after Adam disobeyed God and was driven from the garden. <clears throat> They had to work hard for everything. They had to scrape out a living. And so Yeats brings in this religious quality to it by saying that since Adam's fall, like he says, it's certain there is no fine thing since Adam's fall, but needs much labouring. In other words, he's he's telling us in this in this line that anything that is beautiful or or, or to be treasured requires a lot of work you must slave to be beautiful you must slave to write a beautiful poem anything that you make that is beautiful you have to slave at it and this is this is from adam's time and that's where the title comes from adam's course it's adam's course that people working in poetry or women looking beautiful that we all have to strive for these things to work hard to scrape out beauty where we can find it and and as soon as he talks about love, because then he goes on about love and about, um, you know, there have been lovers who thought love should be so much compounded by of compounded of high courtesy. And again, this is kind of like him. Yeats, he's famous for being madly in love with this one woman, Maud Gone, and, and pestering her to death about marrying him and about relationship. And whether or not they actually were intimate is... You know, some say they were, others say that she kind of just strung him along. Not really sure. Um, not really important. Um, just for the sake of it, though. You know, he was one of these ones who felt that, you know, love was like the chivalric, beautiful kind of thing. Not, you know, just kind of a fleshy thing as as, you know, for a lot of people it is. And, and they go quiet at this talk of love. And again, this could be because she's either mar married to John McBride or she's about to marry John McBride and she knows it. And we get a scene of where it is. You know, the sky is darkening. They see a moon that kind of looks sh like hollow. Uh, uh, you know, a very faint one moon, as they would say. And to him, it looks as if you know, the coming and going of time, all these years have passed since Adam, um, since Adam's fall. And the moon even is worn out and tired and jaded. And, you know, the moon is a fascinating thing in, you know, in Irish poetry. Like there's a, a, a massive love for the moon. The moon is a very big deal in, in Irish, particularly in the Celtic twilight. They had this whole thing of, you know, the moon and the, the, the mystery of, of night. And all of that jazz. So like even the moon. The, the symbol of. 
of power and romance and mystery is just worn out and weary and weary and just drained and then he ends it with the the last section which is so evocative and so you know kind of heartbreaking in a way and i think it's a realization that he's either he's put this in a you know you can almost imagine him adding this or writing this just after he found out that Maud Gunn got married. And he's adding this bit to that memory in, in retrospect. Where he says, I had a thought for no one's but your ears. That you were beautiful and that I strove to love you in the old highway of love. So here he's admitting that this person, who, these lovers who think that love must be compounded of, um, what is it, of high courtesy. You know, that love, who thought, there have been lovers who thought love should be so much compounded of high courtesy that they would sigh and quote with learned looks, precedence out of beautiful old books. That's him, because he's admitting it here. That he wanted to say to her this one time that, you know, I thought you were beautiful and I strove to love you the way that they loved you in these books. That this old chivalric way of love, that's what I wanted to give you. That's what I would have given you. But you opted instead to marry this other guy who's not all that good. He's not romantic. He's not, you know, chivalric. He's a brute. Because Yeats didn't like him. He thought he was John McBride was a brute. And he, he was a bit of a brute. He wasn't um, a good husband for Maud. There's all sorts of accusations been made about him again. Whether we know the true or not, who knows. But for Yeats, he was telling Maud Gone, I, I would have loved you in perfection. I would have loved you the way they loved you, the way they loved in these books, the old highway of love. And then, casting back to the memory, it had all seemed happy. Like that, that walk, they all seemed happy. But again, the realisation that their love their love interest had come to an end. She was married now. And yet we'd grown as weary hearted as that hollow moon. So they were worn out and, and, and jaded and tired and not left of them. They were just husks, as it were, like the moon, a husk. It's heartbreaking. In fact, I remember watching a documentary where Richard E. Grant was reading this poem and choked up at the end and said that he always chokes up at that, that last line. And it's quite a powerful line, I think. But for me, the reason why I love this poem so much is because it does talk about, you know, the fact that as a poet, our work is considered pointless and, and meaningless. You know, there's that whole thing of, we, you know, where companies or people will pay a poet to write, or get a poet to write a poem for them and then pay them in exposure. All kinds of artists suffer from this. We'll pay you with exposure, you know. We, we can't afford to pay you for your work, but we'll promote you. It's not good enough because, you know, the money actually, you know, is what I need. And it's a whole thing that people don't have that value on art. They don't have that value for poetry. Yeah, poets work really hard and all artists work really hard at making something beautiful. A fine beauty in this ugly, rubbish world. And people enjoy that beauty. If it wasn't beautiful, if it wasn't effortless, they wouldn't enjoy it. 
and 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 that's one of the things that I love about it. But it's also lovely because it's that moment, I you know where Yates and Modgon's relationship, where he was trying to get her to marry him, had come to an end, and even though it seemed happy, there was a sadness to that to that memory, because she then goes off and marries someone else, and Yates, the great love of his life, is now beyond his reach. And and he doesn't know what'll happen or whatever. It's that thing, my the girl I love or the guy I love, he's just got married. And that's it. Now I can never have him. Can never have her. And that's what this poem is as well. There's that sadness to it. So it's really beautiful. I'm gonna put the links up there and I so urge you to read it. And and just to think about it, you know, think about that that moment. Not not only from the point of view of whether if you're an artist great there's a poem that's there griping the same thing that every writer and artist ever does is gripe about the fact that people think that their work is effortless and that anyone can do it yet it's so difficult and painstaking but also does the fact think about it any relationship that you've ever had that moment where you know that that relationship is ending or whatever it's 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 sad and again it's adam's course so Thank you very much for listening for, to this poem. Um, hope you're all well. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate the podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the links in the show notes for more information about the poet and to read the poem we looked at this week. And also check out the link to learn more about my poetry. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time, stay safe.